Okay, welcome back to Behind the Brain Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Robinson. If you're interested in all things brain health and want to learn more about this magnificent organ in your head, then you're in the right place. This show is where we interview experts in the field of brain health, whether that's neurology, psychology, integrative and naturopathic medicine, and more. So today we have with us Dr. Erica Johnson. Dr. Johnson is a rehabilitation psychologist and a fellow of the American Epilepsy Society. Since 2008, Dr. Johnson has investigated programmatic variables and efficacy of epilepsy self-management interventions in collaboration with Dr. Fraser. In addition to her work on PACES, Dr. Mm -hmm. Johnson is an investigator on the Project Uplift team. And for those of you who are listening and not really sure what that is, that's basically what we're going to talk about today. So no worries if you don't know what that means yet. Her areas of research inquiry include psychosocial and neuropsychological features of chronic central nervous system illness, mood and anxiety disorders, and epilepsy, and statistical approaches to measuring clinical, clinically significant outcomes. Uh, so while pursuing her PhD at the University of Wisconsin, Dr. Johnson's EF-funded work included a vocational intervention involving youth with epilepsy under the mentor mentorship of Dr. Bruce Herman. Um, so within the American Epilepsy Society, Dr. Johnson has previously served as a point of care partnerships content work group member, a faculty member of the AES fellowship program, training director task force fellowship curriculum project, a member of the professionals and epilepsy care committee and a member of the employment task force. She is a current co-chair of the cognitive and behavioral special interest group. Additionally, Dr. Johnson has served division 22 in numerous capacities since 2003, including membership chair of the section on women's issues and rehabilitation psychology, a liaison to the American Psychological, Psychological Association's APA Committee on Disability Issues in Psychology, liaison to the APA Psychology in the Workplace Network, and the Early Career Psychologist Representative to the Executive Board. She has also served as a reviewer for Epilepsia Rehabilitation Psychology, Journal of Burn Care and Research, and Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. So Dr. Johnson, thank you for joining us today. You definitely have a very interesting background. And so can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your academic and professional background? Yeah, thanks very much for um, inviting me to talk with you today, Natalie. It's um, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, you covered uh, a lot of detail, but um, you know, I started out in my um, career doing vocational rehabilitation with people with um, disabilities, and quickly found my way into working um, specifically with people with neurological disabilities. I have a lot of interest in. Um, in this fabulous organ we're talking about in the brain and um, brain behavior relationships. And so started um, working with Dr. Fraser back in 1998 before moving on to start my graduate studies at the University of Wisconsin. Um, and I was really fortunate once I got to the University of Wisconsin to be able to continue um, my development and focus in the area of neurological disability with a particularly um, focused emphasis in epilepsy. And uh, once I finished up my education and training, uh, returned here to the Pacific Northwest and um, reconnected with Bob Fraser, and we have been researching 
epilepsy self-management ever since. That was in about 2008 that we, um, we joined together to apply for grant funding from the CDC and we're fortunate enough to um, receive an award that's allowed us to develop our epilepsy self-management program called PACES. And in the years since I have also um, uh, kind of um, assumed the helm for a retiring faculty member at Emory University with Project Uplift, which is another one of um, our self-management programs. That's very cool. So when you talk about uh, self-management, can you define what exactly self-management is and why it's important? Yeah, the, the concept with self-management is that it, it kind of refers to the day-to-day problem-solving behaviors and activities that anybody assumes um, in care of a medical condition. So, you know, defined really broadly. When it comes to epilepsy self-management, you know, we think about things like problem solving related to medication, related to um, cognitive or mood effects, regardless of whether that's effects from medication or the seizures themselves. Um, and self-management is something that's thought to, and has been shown empirically to enhance patient self-efficacy and self-confidence when it comes to, um, kind of the day-to-day living with a medical condition or disability. So to kind of backtrack quickly, um, what is, can you define what epilepsy is in general for people who don't know? Yeah, so epilepsy is, um, you know, more and more it's being thought of as a term that covers a spectrum, um, but essentially refers to, it, it uh, refers to seizure activity. So, um, so this is when people have uh, abnormal electrical discharges in the brain and, and people aren't given a diagnosis of epilepsy until they've had two seizures. So it is possible to have a seizure in your lifetime and not receive the diagnosis of epilepsy. Um, But people are diagnosed with epilepsy after they've had two or more seizures. So this is electrical discharge in the brain. And it has, depending on where in the brain this occurs, has different effects on people um, from an emotional and a behavioral standpoint. So seizures look different to an outsider seeing one, um, depending on where, where in the brain the seizure is occurring. So what really motivated you to focus on epilepsy and specifically the self-management aspect? Did you kind of, when you got into your studies, did you see that there was a need for uh, self-management intervention with individuals who are diagnosed with epilepsy? Yeah, I did. You know, one of the, um, I think one of the experiences that stands out to me the most, I was, um, uh, in Madison, Wisconsin, working, um, in Bruce Herman's neuropsychology lab. And, and I was, uh, really fortunate to be on a project where we were doing a lot of intensive neuropsychological study with children and adolescents with epilepsy. And 
I met a, um, well, in my mind, he's a young man. He, I think he was 16, 15 at the time who had really been hoping, um, as, as he had entered adolescence to go into, um, the military when he reached the age of 18 and he had had a seizure and, and I was meeting him because he was part of this, um, epilepsy and neuropsychology study. And it just was really striking to me, um, that here he was kind of sitting with me saying, you know, I thought I was going to go into the army when I turned 18 and now I can't do that. Um, and I have no idea what I'm going to do. Uh, and it, it just really drove home the point for me, um, the impact that, a, a new seizure condition can have on somebody and their planning and their trajectory and their concept of themselves and what they can and can't do. And, and it was that interaction that, that kind of um, spurred my dissertation research around vocational um, aspects of epilepsy. And from there, just also, you know, at the same time observed what kinds of mood um, and anxiety effects are common for people with epilepsy, that they're, that people with epilepsy are more likely um, than people in the mainstream population to experience depression and anxiety. And to me, between those issues and the vocational issues, um, it really pointed to some pretty strong areas of need. And I think of self-management as being um, uh, one tool in, in probably a diverse toolbox of things that can be used to address those issues. So with uh, your comment about depression and anxiety as comorbidities with epilepsy and being more common, uh, mm -hmm. what does the self-management help to decrease the mood disorders that can also be present with epilepsy? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, just as a little bit of a quick backdrop, um, uh, my research is done in the context of a network of programs. Um, we're called the Managing Epilepsy Well Network. It's, it's a, a group of multiple universities that are working to develop and research self-management programs. And so um, that's where PACE's is housed and so is Project Uplift. And Project Uplift is a mindfulness-based cognitive behavioral therapy program um, for people with epilepsy. And that program has been shown to both treat um, major depression in people with epilepsy and comorbid depression. It's also been shown to prevent the onset of major depression in people who have um, mild, mild, kind of what we would call subclinical symptoms, but who are at risk for developing depression. Um, on the PACES side, here's something kind of interesting, I think. One of our studies, we did the PACES program with people in person, and we saw an improvement in mood, meaning people got less depressed after receiving the treatment program. but when we repeated that same study several years later, um, just treating people by telephone, their depression did not go down. Now these folks were not, you know, super depressed to begin with. So it, it's not entirely clear, you know, is that because this was on the phone and it wasn't face to face, or is this because people weren't, you know, that depressed to start with. And so there wasn't 
as much kind of, um, you know, volume on the dial, so to speak, to be kind of brought down. I suspect it might be the latter. We have just so much research in general showing that telehealth telephone treatment works. For example, the uplift program I just referenced has all been done by telephone. Um, but those are two examples of where self-management programs can have an effect um, positively on mood and anxiety. People are taught strategies for managing negative mood, for managing their stress. Um, and, and I think that's you know a key aspect of learning to self-manage. So I'm curious, as you were you were talking there, um, what does social connection or what do you think social connection and community plays in a new diagnosis of a chronic disorder like epilepsy? What what do you think the impact of having a social connection and community of people who are going through the same thing? Uh, what what role do you think that plays in? a holistic treatment, not just like a medication to control the seizures? Yeah, I'm so glad you're asking that question. And, you know, it, it's something that the CDC is interested in as well. Like they really recognize that um, part of health means um, the experience of social connectedness and, and isolation. I mean, Gosh, I think all of us, you know, everybody has been experiencing isolation over this last year plus with the pandemic, but it, you know, kind of that aside, social isolation is a significant concern for a lot of people with disabilities, including epilepsy. And, um, you know, your question just has me thinking about a social connectedness is something we're interested in, um, kind of keeping track of in our studies, but B, one of the things that has stood out to me every time I have facilitated a PACES group. So PACES is a treatment and so is Uplift that, that is offered in groups. So we, we recruit pe like about six people with epilepsy come into a group, the group goes once a week for eight weeks and then it's over. And how often it's the case that participants say to me, I'm so excited to be here. This is the first time I've ever met another adult with epilepsy. And it's making me feel so much better to learn that I am not alone in all of these things that I've been experiencing that I have been struggling with. So I, I think the connection piece is, is really substantial for a lot of people. So when you think about a diagnosis, um, would you, would your, I guess your ideal, um, diagnosis, if the process of that, do you, would you require, I mean, that's obviously not something maybe particularly feasible at the moment. Um, but do you think if it was required for everyone who was diagnosed with epilepsy to go through a program like PACES, do you think that the overall experience would be I wouldn't particularly say like positive, like obviously there's, you know, highs and lows of being diagnosed, but um, do you think it would help people who are diagnosed to like know that that was part of the treatment process? That is such a, um, an interesting question. And um, I agree with, I think I heard some hesitation from you. You know, I don't know if we could force people to yeah. do this, but I hear what you're saying. You know, if people, 
if people were encouraged to do this when newly diagnosed, you know, is it possible to change the trajectory of their disability essentially, I think is, is a lot of what we're talking about. And, um, it's a researchable question (laughs) about it for sure. Um, I think, you know, we don't have research on that question, Natalie. So I'm, I'm reflecting on a couple of experiences I've had where groups, um, like this can be really helpful for people. And, you know, I'm thinking too about the number of experiences we've had. We, um, we did some work a number of years ago to adapt paces for veterans and, in the work we were doing, the veterans that um, that we were interviewing said um, repeatedly how much regret they had that they hadn't received the kind of information that we were providing them with through the Paces program. We were having them review the program, and and there was that sense of regret, the sense of, I really could have used this information five years ago when I was diagnosed or 10 years when I was diagnosed. And so those experiences really have um, stood out to me in terms of, you know, are these things that we should be thinking about um, really trying to offer people early on in the diagnosis? Um, I also think about the number of people I've met who really struggled for a number of years before even officially getting their diagnosis. That's a common um, story that I'll hear from participants is that it was a long road to even get to the point of diagnosis, um, especially if seizures were, um, you know, if their seizure presentation was really unusual or was not very frequent in occurrence. Um, and you've also got me thinking about some of the, the research that's been done in relationship to what convinces people to, um, join disability related groups like this. And what's really kind of fun from that research is that it shows that if your mother or your doctor tells you it's a good idea to join a program, you're more likely to do it. So, you know, I'm thinking about your question, you know, if a doctor were to say right at the time of diagnosis, I want you to go um, join this PACES program. You know, I think there's, there's certainly a connection to that idea. I'd see the one downside I've experienced, and I saw this more in multiple sclerosis, honestly, than epilepsy, but sometimes it is harder for people who are newly on their journey Um, especially if their illness course is going to disable them more significantly over time, it can sometimes be really difficult to be in a mixed group with, with people who are much farther along in their disease. Um, cause it really can, you know, kind of put in front of them, whoa, um, this is, this is scary to me. Um, you know, and, and really kind of um, may even prematurely distress them. That makes sense. I can, I can see how that would happen. Um, so kind of along that line, does, 
when you're initially like whoever is initially diagnosed, would their seizure frequency affect the program success? Or have you done any research about that? Or have you seen any in your research where maybe you have someone newly diagnosed who has a higher seizure frequency versus someone who's newly diagnosed and occasionally has them? Um, what is the success and outcomes of those individuals in your program? Yeah, that's a good question too. So um, in our randomized controlled trials of uplift and of paces, I'm going to talk more about paces, but um, we, we studied. So, you know, what I mean by randomized controlled trial is people came into our research study and they were randomly selected to go into the paces, you know, intervention, the paces treatment or they waited on a wait list and the folks um, and everybody was asked about their seizure frequency and their seizure types and that kind of thing. And so at the end of the trial, we had, you know, data from the treatment group that we compared to the control group. And then we also looked at what, um, what variables predicted treatment outcomes and seizure frequency was not part of the mix there. Seizure frequency was not related to outcomes. And so for us, that really suggests that. And, and as an aside, um, part of the criteria for you being eligible to be in the study were that you had to have at least a seizure in the last year. So we had everything from people who had had an aura or two in the last year to people who were having seizures weekly or monthly. Um, and so we felt pretty confident that that the program works separate from seizure frequency. Um, and, and to me, that's good news. You know, I, I think it'd be a little bit, um, we certainly would have to kind of pigeonhole the treatment a bit if it only worked for people with certain frequencies of seizures. It's pretty neat to see that uh, this works regardless of frequency. And, and you know, just anecdotally, um, I think the, the, the combination within the groups of seizure frequency was helpful. It gave, I think it gave folks who had seizures more frequently some hope to meet people whose seizures weren't happening as often. Um, so those are some of my thoughts, but really good question. So I'm curious because I have been, I did some research a while back about uh, education statistics on individuals with uh, epilepsy and disabilities, as well as like job, professional job outcomes. So mm -hmm. uh, I'm curious about your, the PACES program. Uh, how does the program affect, if you've done research again, um, affect like educational outcomes? Like do, do people who have, again, I don't know, I guess it depends on age group, but uh, do people who go through the program uh, have a, a higher level of education or just are they more likely to finish their education and then kind of similar question with the professional job uh, situation as well yeah so I think this one's interesting um the people that came into our paces study um on average had I think it was about 14 years of education or more. It was, it, you know, all things considered relative to what you're likely to see in national base, like base samples, the education level was higher. 
And at the same time, it wasn't discrepant from the educational um, level you see broadly, like in the King County population here in Washington state or the Pierce County population. And so we, you know, we thought, okay, we're getting folks that are kind of representative of our region here. People are pretty highly educated here. We have a big tech sector, that kind of thing. Um, we, we did not study in the PACES project um, employment, or job classifications beyond that. Um, and there were a few reasons. I mean, one is in studies like this, we have to be really um, efficient in terms of which variables we're studying and what outcomes we're looking for because um, kind of each variable uh, requires essentially a certain amount of data in order to be able to, you know, to appreciably pick up on changes and, and you can easily get too many variables um, if your studies are, you know, are small. Like each of our studies had about 200 people in them. Um, so our, our primary outcomes in the PACES um, studies have been self-efficacy, self-management, quality of life, depression, and anxiety. Um, and then, as I mentioned, we've looked for clinical correlates and haven't seen any. The other thing that, that um, kind of motivated uh, us not paying as much attention on or, or putting as much focus, I would say, on the, um, on the employment variable is that leading into the development of the PACES project, we did a large psychosocial needs assessment survey with patients through the regional epilepsy center here at the University of Washington and other epilepsy programs in Washington state and, and also in the Southeastern portion of the United States out of, out of Atlanta. And people responded to a number of items across a bunch of different psychosocial domains, including employment and kind of told us how severe are the problems that you're having. And they really indicated low severity of problems around employment. And we think that may be more reflective of people having already kind of opted out of the labor market. And so saying, you know, cause you might encounter a survey op, um, item about having problems in on the job site, but if you're not employed, you're gonna say, I don't have that problem or it's not applicable. Um, so, so that was part of it. It's a, I'm kind of a long-winded way of telling you that we don't have as much data on the, on the professional or job category side of things. Okay. That's, that's interesting. Um, so I'm kind of just going all over the place here because, uh, so I'm, I'm curious, this is kind of a random question, but if you're looking at like self-management uh, and quality of life and the program can, you know, do that with patients and epilepsy, uh, what role would, um, let me rephrase this. Uh, my words are all over the place. Um, so I guess we'll start with how important do you think the intersection of neurology and psychology are in a situation where you have a chronic neurological condition and the main focus is like 
neurological. So the main focus is, you know, you get tested, you, you get medications, you do treatment like that, but there's really no, in my experience, there's like no, not a whole lot of encouragement on the psychological aspect and like using techniques like self-management. Um, how important do you think that is? And why do you think it is important? Well, I, I think it's very important. Um, and, uh, in part because, um, we know that when people are treated from what's called a biopsychosocial model, meaning the treatment model pays attention to not just the medical piece, the biological piece, what's happening in the brain, what kind of medications are being used, but also considers the person's psychosocial, if not psychospiritual um, aspects that, that people do better overall. And um, it's interesting because your question, this is a little bit of a tangent, but your question reminds me of conversations I've been party to with some colleagues recently about um, COVID long haul um, illness and how there's, there's a lot of thinking right now that there's a, a significant um, psychological aspect that's just being missed in treating these patients that all the focus is going on symptom alleviation and not paying enough attention to what people are dealing with psychologically as a result. And, and to me, it, it, you know, it, it reminds me and validates issues we've seen similarly in other types of illnesses or diseases or disabilities. Um, so I think the question is important that, you know, we're talking about in epilepsy, we're talking about a disease that affects the brain and, um, and mental well-being you know, by necessity also lives in the brain, but it also, you know, it's, it's connected to our environment and, and it's connected to our, um, you know, our social landscape. So I, I think it's really, to me, you know, your question kind of makes me think about what happens if we kind of treat people in a vacuum where we're only paying attention to the one thing and excluding the others. And I think there's a lot of relevant behavioral aspects in epilepsy, when we think about the medications and the way they affect folks, never mind the seizures and the way they can affect people as well. Yeah. So going along with that, that's actually really interesting to consider the long haul treatment of COVID, um, those symptoms. I didn't think about that, but it is interesting. I feel like there's not a whole lot of focus on you know it's just like almost a hyper focus on some things medically so you don't really get the whole picture so that's that's interesting to think about um and it brings me to a question about you were mentioning the positive effect of these in-person groups and and community and engagement with other people going through the same thing so when you think about the past year and when you think about COVID and how you know like appointments turned into to telehealth calls and all of that. Um, how has COVID impacted the PACES program if it has? And how has, I don't know if it's in person or if it's telephone calls, I mean, everything's so kind of new at the moment, but um, mm -hmm. how has that really affected the program and not only the program, but the individuals involved and the outcomes? Yeah, yeah. So it, it you know, it's, it's super interesting from the standpoint that 
that before the pandemic started, we had completed all of our randomized controlled trials of PACES and of Uplift. So we knew that we had these epilepsy group programs that work um, by telephone. And there was a lot of, um, I think there's a lot of uh, hesitance and reluctance before the pandemic, especially on the part of policymakers and health insurers to cover um, telehealth. And the pandemic really kind of blew the hinges off the doors in that respect. And so we saw this immediate upsurge in interest from professionals wanting to be trained in the program so that they could offer these programs through their epilepsy clinics while the clinics were either shut down or readjusting or moving over to telehealth platforms. You know, there was a lot of kind of reconfiguring that went on within epilepsy clinics to figure out how to treat people safely. So that was one of the ways that we saw an impact um, of the pandemic is really this increased demand. Um, increased need. The other, but in, in kind of addition to that, you know, a big portion of the PACES program has to do with getting folks thinking about and setting goals around their, their social networks. Um, we have people kind of assess their social support networks and we get people thinking about different ways to be involved in their community, especially on a budget. Um, and all of these things were really affected by the pandemic. And so we've now um, developed new supplementary material. And I, I think we all hope that we don't have to use this material for much longer, but we really did adapt our materials to adjust for um, the current COVID environment. So where we had a lot of things that emphasize, say, being out in public and volunteering, um, we really emphasized things that you can do safely, either outdoors, um, you know, distance from folks or indoors at home that can be explored and, and that kind of thing. So I'd say those are the two, you know, two most salient ways that, that we saw an impact from the pandemic. Okay, that that makes sense. Um, so, is there is there anything about the Paces program that you would want to say that I haven't asked about yet? That's a very broad question, but um... well, let, you know, that's a, um, why don't I describe it just so that your listeners have a sense of of. Um, maybe kind of concretely what I've talk, been talking about, because I, I realize I've been giving you kind of these higher level descriptions of it. But essentially, as I mentioned before, so this is an eight week group program. And, and we have, um, depending on where you are in, in the nation, we have different um, partners that we've been working with to, um, to train and roll the program out. So there's some different Epilepsy Foundation affiliates, and we've also trained um, people in a number of epilepsy centers. So neuropsychologists, um, psychologists, epilep epilepsy doctors and nurses. Um, but this is an eight week program where, where um, 
the group is led by an epilepsy professional and a trained peer with epilepsy. So it's, it's two people leading the group each week. The group meets for an hour at a time. And the first week is a focus on what I would call kind of epilepsy. We call it epilepsy 101, kind of the medical aspects of epilepsy. So understanding what, what epilepsy is, the different types of seizures, um, seizure terminology, medication classes, and, and, um, and then kind of the, what we know about um, alternative and um, additional treatment strategies. And some of this is done to really um, kind of give people not only good working knowledge, but good working vocabulary so that when they're interacting with their doctors, they understand that there's, you know, nomenclature for, for different seizures. Then because of the, um, the, the more common issues around mood and anxiety, we have two back-to-back um, sessions on managing stress in the blues. And these come from a cognitive behavioral framework. And, and so this is some of what I was just alluding to in terms of, you know, getting people thinking about how they're connecting in their community, what kinds of things they're doing for an enjoyment and pleasure, how they're, um, you know, what their social network is like, or how they might like to improve their social network. The fourth session focuses on strategies for managing cognitive challenges, because as we know, that can happen more frequently, either because of the seizures themselves or medication side effects, or sometimes there's other um, less clear things going on. And then there's a session on assertive communication. So how to effectively disclose your epilepsy and talk to other people about your epilepsy. And, and this is our most highly rated session from participants. They love it. They really come away having a, a very clear and concise and compact way of talking about their epilepsy to other people. Um, we have a session that focuses on community participation on a budget one that focuses on getting the most out of your medical team and healthcare. So kind of how to leverage the, the healthcare team. Um, and then the final session is focused more broadly on health and well-being. We've got a, a kind of a three part um, outline in that session around sleep and nutrition and exercise. That's important information and good to know. So I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> So uh, to follow up, it triggered another question. So um, how do you think that general education and advocacy uh, in the general population would affect individuals with epilepsy? Do you think that there's a connection there between um, individuals with epilepsy maybe not feeling comfortable because people might not un understand what epilepsy is or how, like, how important do you think education and advocacy plays into that? Yeah, I, I definitely think education um, for the general public is important because it does a lot to um, destigmatize the illness. And I think it does a lot to also increase the likelihood that somebody can get effective help if they need it, if they're having a seizure in public or, or in a space where they're going to be relying on, 
on others to help them. I think the education is incredibly important. And unfortunately, you know, I'm still kind of taken aback by the number of people I meet who run into somebody who really has a misconception over how to help somebody during a seizure, you know, the proverbial, oh my gosh, I met this person and they still think you're supposed to put a spoon in somebody's mouth so they won't swallow their tongue. I mean, stuff that can be quite dangerous, right? So I think that, um, I think it's crucial in terms of safety, but also lowering stigma. Um, and I think of stigma as something that, that people can kind of feel within themselves, but also something that people can feel from their social environments. And so I think it's important that we, we look at what efforts can be done on both parts of that spectrum to help with, with stigma and education, I think is, uh, is an important piece on dealing with the social environment. I think the, uh, I think the media also plays a role, uh, not in a negative way, but when I was an undergrad, um, I did a paper on Gray's anatomy because they did not properly represent how to treat someone having a seizure and it's a medical show. And I mean, you know, a lot of people will watch those shows and then they might be like, oh, I watched this TV show. I know what to do. And it's mm-hmm. like, well, actually that was not the proper way to do that. So um, I think that's also the responsibility of, of the media and just content producers to really acknowledge that as well. But that's such a great point. You're right. I mean, it, yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more, Natalie. It's a good point. Yeah, it's it's kind of painful to watch sometimes. I'm like, uh-huh. I'm, I'm like, why are we still doing this? <laughs> like, it's 2021, but oh well. Um, yeah. So yeah, well, I'm glad we talked about that because that's important to listen to as well. Um, so, do you have any fun facts you want to share or anything like that? That's kind of all all the questions that I have for you. So, oh, okay. Um, oh gosh, fun <laughs> facts. <laughs> I feel like I'm a little lacking on those these days. <laughs> um, oh, do you have any categories that your fun fact ideas kind of fall into that might help direct some of my thinking here? Um, could be a few. What about, we'll go with, uh, I don't know. What's your spirit animal? <laughs> oh, good question. Um, Mm, well, I'm kind of looking at one right now. My, I think a cat, I, I definitely kind of relate to cats quite a bit. Do you yeah. have a, is there, is there a reason for that? <laughs> um, they're, 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 they're fickle. <laughs> they're, uh, they're independent. <laughs> so <laughs> I would say those are two pretty big reasons. Um, and when you win them over they're uh, they're pretty dedicated. Yeah. True. Interesting. Interesting. Well, there you go. <laughs> Fun fact number one. <laughs> okay. Um. Well, what uh, what type of cat specifically? Oh gosh. So um, I'm not sure. I've ever really kind of delved um delved into that idea a really it's an inch a smaller one um yeah like a, a domesticated 
kind of smaller cat. Good question, because cats sure encompass a whole broad range, don't they? There's, there is a lot. Yeah, there's yeah. All, and all kinds of personalities. So yeah, yeah. No, their own. <laughs> they're, yeah. I didn't know I was ever a cat person. And then we got a cat and I was like, well, they're kind of cute, but I guess you got it. You got to warm up to them because they're definitely, like you said, independent. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, there you go. Dr. Johnson is a cat person. If you take anything <laughs> from this podcast, take that. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So I guess, I guess, first of all, thank you again to our listeners for listening in and this important conversation, important, uh, you know, yeah, conversation to be had and uh, special thanks to Dr. Johnson. Thank you for taking the time again to talk with me. Really important, really informational. Um, and then basically, if you want to learn anything more about the PACES program, um, I will have more information and further resources for you up on my blog post, and I will attach that to the episode bio. Um, and yeah, if you're inspired by the program, definitely do more research about it. Look into it. It's awesome work. Um, and next week we will talk about it's, I have to keep it. It's a surprise because it's very interesting and I'm really excited, but I don't want to give it away. So come back next week and we'll, we'll, we'll have a good one for you to listen to. So with that being said, thank you for listening again and we'll see you guys next week. Thanks, Natalie. I really appreciate the invitation. It was good to talk with you.